the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on the show, we're going to talk about generations, Christians in power, and a whole lot of other things. That's coming up here is The Common Good. Welcome to The Common Good. I'm trying different intros, Brian. I like them. This is The Common Good. Here's The Common Good. You're listening to The Common Good. Try a dash of Common Good. <laughs> Get yourself a dollop of Common Good. Stir it in real nice. You might not mean to be here, but you're here at The Common Good. <laughs> you're accidentally listening to The Common Good. <laughs> we know your radio was on seek, and it just stopped right now. <laughs> uh, Alexa misheard you, and now you're here at The Common Good. <laughs> I said, take me to The Common Ground. <laughs> And instead, you brought me here. A <laughs> lot of options. And I'm just going to keep switching it up until someone says to stop. Yep. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, on Twitter at Common Good Talk, plus wherever it is you get your podcast. I'm, I joked about Alexa. You said you were going to try. Does it work? I have tried. Brian. I'm sorry. It was like a month and a half ago. It was. I failed on that one. How hard is that? It's not hard. It's just <laughs> thinking to do it. There was that Super Bowl commercial I thought was very good about Alexa the other night. And when you saw that commercial, it did not make me go. Was, was any part of you like, wait a minute, Alexa, listen to Come Good? I should do this thing that I've literally told our audience. I have. <laughs> like I've been letting our audience down. Well, that commercial was funny because they kept being like, Alex, Lexi, Alexis. That was pretty funny. I laughed at that commercial. <laughs> All right, so I think by tomorrow we'll have an answer. Done. You said that last time. Yes. John, if you could text me tonight. <laughs> Just write yourself a note. You have a laptop and a cell phone in front then of you. someone needs to text me. Look at your notes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You're the, you're the lead pastor? Is it the... I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yes. I'm not I'm as... Gonna, dis- I'm going to pull up the website. I'm not as disorganized as I make myself out to be. <laughs> Brian Fromm's bio is like, I, th- I think I'm the lead pastor. I'm I've not, been here for a while. No I one's know. giving me a guitar in a while, so I guess I'm not the... He doesn't work anymore, but I don't know what that means. I still somehow have access to change my bio on the website. (laughs) If anyone's seen my, but if anyone could find a new key, that would be helpful. (laughs) That's funny. That would be a funny way to go out. All right, so here's an article from back in November. It's talking about uh, a lot of the statewide elections, but I'm going to read the intro and. I think this has some good challenges for us. The, the title is Three Keys to Thriving in Modern Day Babylon. <laughs> so again, I, I realize that this gets tossed around a lot. Brian Zahn wrote a book about uh, Letters from Babylon. There certainly are some correlations, I think, that we can find mm-hmm. between Babylon and our current state of affairs. But I don't think it's a one-to-one, so just to be yeah fair to that. Um, but because this was written back in November, it says, Last night there were statewide elections across the country, meaning roughly half of the population woke up this morning upset about the results. While Christians have a responsibility to engage in the political process, our kingdom 
ultimately is not of this world. For the other half, for those feeling like they are living in a state or country whose values are fast departing those we see in Scripture, we can find inspiration in Old Testament heroes like Daniel, who not only survived but thrived in a foreign culture, Babylon, that didn't even pretend to hold the Scripture. Like Mm -hmm. Daniel, if we find ourselves in a modern-day Babylon, how can we not only survive but thrive? Here are three keys to thriving in modern-day Babylon. And... They all begin with the same letter. So as pastors, we're really, really into it. Why don't you give us number one? Number one's hope. You can't give up hope. You can't give up, period. When you throw your hands up and walk away from it all, when you refuse to be a part of God's redemptive purpose in the world, you cede all authority and control to the enemy. Hmm. When Christians had majorities in all the states, we were still unable to legislate morality because we deal with matters of the heart. Go back and look at how Daniel thrived in Babylon. Go back and read how the early church thrived in the hostile Roman Empire. Mm. Sometimes God does his biggest work when the culture is moving in the opposite direction. Hold your head up. Praise God today and hope. Okay, so we're on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hope for your life. Mm -hmm. Do you find this easier said than done? Absolutely. Like You can look around. Uh, and social media, you and I have talked ad nauseum about social media and the role it plays. But you listen to political pundits, you see people, yeah. politicians who don't really seem to care other right. than their own self-advancement. You see things in our culture feeling like they're going downhill in an uncomfortable way. And it can become a really easy to lose hope. So I think this is an important foundational one that, you know what? Uh, God can still work. Right. Uh, we don't have to lose hope because I think losing hope, uh, I think despair is a really easy spot to to uh, end up with. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, so we're reading three keys to thriving in modern day Babylon. First one was hope. Second one is humility. Holding up placards on the side of the road, denouncing godlessness and condemning everyone to hell is not the most effective way mm-hmm. to share the love and the gospel of Jesus. If you're in a work environment, a state, or even a country where biblical values are not upheld, you're going to take your lumps. You'll have to learn how to walk humbly and persuade others through love, not through law. If you're looking for an example, look at how the Son of God walked humbly while on this earth and how he willingly suffered without fighting back. Yeah. I always think, too, of the um, the passage that says it's your loving kindness that leads us to repentance, yes. right? And so often the, that manifests as uh, some aggressive proselytizing. Yeah. And I think, gosh, if, if love and kindness is part of the methodology behind God's evangelism, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. maybe that has a place in ours too. Yeah. And the humility, I mean, like they said here, you don't have to look any further than Jesus. So, uh, if, if Jesus was the ultimate example of humility and we're called in Philippians two to follow that example, yeah, right. Then obviously humility is an important part. Number three, uh, hard work. The fight isn't over, and not even by a long shot. If you're living in Babylon, you now get to put into practice Jesus' command to be uh, as, quote, shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves, Matthew ten sixteen. That doesn't mean that we start a revolution. It just means we need to look work smarter and work harder. For instance, uh, in this author's home state of Virginia, there was a change in party leadership in both houses of the state legislature, and an expanded abortion bill is sure to come up. If abortion rights are expanded across the state, do Christians have any other options to advocate for life other than political influence. Mm. How are churches reaching and influencing young women who are currently debating whether or not to choose life? Instead of just picketing outside of clinics, how do we reach and offer hope to young women before they ever pull up to an abortion mm. clinic? That takes hard work, but that's how you thrive in a modern-day Babylon. All right, so what do you what do you think of this list? Which one do you think is the most difficult, maybe for you personally or for culture as a whole, to actually adopt? 
Gosh, I think they all have difficulties. I think it's the hard work one. Like, really? it's not even hard work. It's what's the work? Like, how, hmm. what are we to be doing yeah. uh, to use their imagery, right, of this author? If they're in a modern-day Babylon that is running away from what we believe and going in the opposite direction, what does even the work of the church and the Christ follower look like? So yeah. it's not even the hard part of the hard work. It's what's that work? Yeah, uh, You can spend all of your time doing many different things. Uh, and so, but all of them, I think are difficult. We talked about hope already. Uh, it could be difficult to be humble. Like, no, like, like I'm going to just actually just fight. And, um, so all of these are hard for me. It's the, it's the, what is the work, uh, in the hard work? How about you? Which one do you think is most difficult? Well, I don't necessarily know that like finding what is the work is the hardest Mm -hmm. part. It's that we disagree on what the work is. Mm -hmm. I think we have a lot of people who are convinced they know what the work needs to be and maybe miss number two. And so the assumption is um, I'm doing this work and anyone who's not doing this work with me is yeah. stupid or not reading their Bible or theologically ignorant. Like doesn't, don't you find that to sometimes be the tone? Like it's not just, Hey, we each have our own piece to contribute here. And I'm not, and I'm not saying every contribution is equal or right at all. Certainly are, I think people that are contributing in ways that are toxic and broken, but mm. don't you find in Christendom sometimes it's uh, it's sort of like, man, if you don't see if you don't see this exactly as I see it, you're yes. really doing the work exactly that I'm doing, then you've like missed it, man. Yep. You don't know the real Jesus, which then goes against number two of humility. That's what I'm saying uh, yeah. of that ability to say I'm not right about everything. So these are all intertwined together. Um, and, you know, I, I going back to that number one, like sometimes when you say things like, oh, you know, we're in a modern day Babylon, as you said, it could become easy to like just despair and just that, that, that's not what we're called to do. Like we're called to be the hands and feet of Jesus, uh, whether there are, uh, you know, um, whether there are political leaders who agree with us or disagree with us, like we're to be different. And I think this article does a great job of pointing out how. Yeah, I think that segues pretty nicely to uh, what I want to talk about next out of the Gospel Coalition. It says the high stakes of how Christians approach power. That's what we're going to talk about next coming up here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Back to the common good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are here Monday through Friday, 4 to 6 p.m. Central Standard Time, but we are also podcasted. We're a radio show first, then a podcast, which I feel like we get a lot of questions about. It's not that interesting to talk about, but just want to clear that up in case anyone was confused. But if you would like to find out more, you can go to Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, or 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. There's old podcasts. There's information. There's an opportunity. If you have suggestions for articles, any of that, uh, we do really, really appreciate any feedback, any interaction whatsoever. So feel free to engage with us however you like. And before we dive into this article about how Christians engage with power, I'm going to tell you about something coming from uh, GLS, the Global Leadership Network, invites you to uh, inspire your continued leadership growth at the GLS Next Event Series coming up Tuesday, February 4th, with fresh, actionable insights for your leadership journey. Hearing from Nona Jones, Facebook's head of global faith-based partnerships, and Jason Dorsey, a prolific speaker and researcher on Gen Z and millennials. GLS Next is hosted by Daniel Strickland, who is awesome, and will be held in South Barrington starting at 2 p.m. next Tuesday. Get your tickets today at globalleadership.org slash events. That's globalleadership.org slash events. 
All right, so this is a uh, article out of the Gospel Coalition, and it's it's an interview mm-hmm. with. Uh, have you ever heard of a pastor named Scott Sowles? Sowles, am I saying it correctly? Sowles. I'm, I'm vaguely familiar. Okay, t- tell me what you know about Scott Sowles. That we quote him all the time on this show. <laughs> so he's a pastor, I think, Redeemer. No, he used to be at Redeemer. It's a Christ Presbyterian Church, maybe, in Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. So he used to be at Redeemer in New York, uh, working with Tim Keller, and now he's at a big Presbyterian church in Nashville. But I uh, and you, uh, we've said this on the show many times, whether it be his tweets, his blogs, or his books that he has written, uh, I really resonate with a lot of what Scott Saul says. So he happens to be part of this interview in this one. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, I feel comfortable um, telling people, if you're looking for a pastor to read, to follow on Twitter, to even listen to, I think Scott Sauls is high on that list. I totally agree. So what are they talking about here in this interview? So this is Sauls. There's an interview both with Sauls and somebody here by the name of Jamin Goggin. uh, And they're talking about the high stakes of how Christians approach power. So let me read the first paragraph. It says, power is one of the most pressing issues facing the evangelical church uh, at the beginning of this new decade. Maybe I'll stop there. Do you agree with that? Uh, Do you agree with that statement uh i think so doesn't say the most but it says one of the most yeah i think that's fair okay so they go on to say how do we steward it in christ-like ways how are we tempted to adopt the world's usually corrupting approach to it how can we avoid the many ways power and platform can ruin lives and slander the name of jesus as we enter a u.s election year and look ahead to the 2020s so much of the church's mission and witness hinges on how we approach Power, hmm. And so this becomes an interview with Sauls and Jamin Goggin uh, in this Q&A. This author asked them to reflect on the topic of power and the relevance for the church in 2020 and beyond. And so that's the setup. The first question they ask them is, why is power a critical topic for pastors and church leaders today? Sauls goes on to say, on the one hand, power is entrusted to leaders by the Lord so that we will use it for good. The more influence, resources, and opportunity a leader is given, the more potential he or she has to do good in the church and the world. On the other hand, Hmm. power in the absence of gospel virtue and the fruit of the spirit can become a breeding ground for all sorts of toxicity, injustice, inequality, abuse, and other injurious treatments of others. Sadly, the ministry is not exempt from the kind of corruption because ministers, like everybody else, live with a sin problem. Power, like money and time and relationships, must be stewarded faithfully to remain a good thing in the hands of a leader. I think him holding up this dichotomy of uh, gospel virtue, gospel-inspired uh, power versus uh, other power that we see too often in the church and in culture, I think is really helpful. Yeah, and Gogan is it Gogan? Gogan? I have no idea, so I'm going with Gogan. I'll go with Gogan. Uh, said, Scripture makes the option simple. We either embrace the way of power from above, marked uh, by humility and love, or we embrace the way of power from below, marked by the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's from James 3. I'm concerned that we pastors spend little time considering how our view of power shapes our ministry. Consequently, we can fall prey to the way from below expressed through control, coercion, and manipulation. To be faithful to our call, pastors must attend honestly and prayerfully to their view of power and how it shapes their ministry. Interestingly enough, and I know you're going to make fun of me. I was just watching a documentary (laughs) (laughs) on cults. And really, yeah, and describing uh, how cults form, uh, characteristics of cult leaders. And I will refrain from saying anything specific, but there were parts of the documentary I thought, 
You know, that sounds a lot like some churches I know. Wow. Church leaders I know. Like to, and I'm not talking I got you. Jim I got Jones you. mass suicide yep. every yep. time, yep. but yep. certainly like a they literally part of the documentary was here's sort of the seven steps. And I was like, Oh man. There were some similarities that I thought exactly what they're saying. A power is not in and of itself a bad thing. Right. But when you wield it to what's he say, control, coercion, and manipulation, yeah, then it can start to resemble something much different than the Bride of Christ. Absolutely. So they've both written books. So Saul's wrote one called From Weakness to Strength. Uh, and Goggin, along with uh, Kyle Strobel, wrote The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. And so this author, uh, this uh, interviewer asks, since writing your books, we have witnessed numerous pastors and ministries in evangelical church fall prey to temptations to power. Hmm. How should Christians and churches respond? What are key lessons? Goggin goes on to say, for many of us, it can be tempting to respond to these stories with a kind of distanced judgment. But it's dangerous to always view the problem of power in the churches out there in those celebrity pastors and mega churches and denominations. Uh, to be sure, we need to consider the dangerous propensities of particular ecclesial structures and systems of governance. We need to take seriously the destructive effects of celebrity culture. And we've been banging that drum for so long now, yeah, but right. man, it doesn't seem to be getting better and, and is really a an open door to kind of power um, abuses. Well, and I want to make sure to get to this question, too, because I feel like this is a topic you and I just keep coming back to. In this election year, how should Christians navigate the power dynamics of politics in ways that glorify God and don't damage our Christian witness? So that word navigate is an important one. Some people are like, I'm not going to navigate it at all. I am going to bury my head in the sand or I'm going to disengage. Others um, have made some alliances that maybe necessarily don't help the cause of Christ or their image personally. So like this navigating it's tumultuous for sure yes. so this is what Saul says um, Christians have a great opportunity in 2020 to either blow our witness or establish it hmm. we will blow our witness if we continue to conflate our Christianity with partisan platforms especially when we do so from a self-serving uncharitable and blindly partisan posture we hmm. will on the other hand establish our witness if we approach the political landscape in the same way we are called to approach every landscape with honesty humility and charity it will do the Christian witness much good if we engage the political process in such a way that praises the virtues and confronts the vices of every party including the ones we support for no party is completely virtuous and no party is completely vicious I love what Michael Weir once said about the chief purpose of voting of the voting booth it is a realm from which to love our neighbors as ourselves Mm. that Again, this is probably evidence of why we like Saul's so much. Yes. But like, what do you think of that response to a pretty complicated question? I just think it's so good. I think it is so good because just that first sentence, we have an opportunity to either blow our witness or establish it. And I think I don't think the church in general, Christ followers are doing a good job right now as seeing the um, the opportunity, but also the potential damage that's coming down the road here in this election season that we yeah. don't see it yeah. as either blowing or affirming our witness. Uh, and I really think that's dangerous. We need to see it that way. So I appreciate Saul's bringing that up. Yeah, totally agree. All right, well, coming up next, a best-selling author out of New York named Michael Levin. He wrote an article that says, okay, Boomer, really? Here's what needs to be said to the younger generations. We're going to talk to him about that article from Fox.com coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hey everyone, Ian Simpkins here, and after we had this marriage conference with Thrivent and two other local churches, it kind of piqued my interest to learn more about this organization. We had such a good response with them at the conference, I was kind of interested in seeing what else they did, and so they actually provided me with this list of like 12 or 13 different topics that they offer free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously, and the thing that was crazy is that each of these topics were things that people in my church were actually asking me, things that I didn't really know how to talk about. And so they offered numerous free workshops for the people in our church to help them be wise with money and to live generously. And let me tell you, it was this really beautiful sort of no strings attached kind of a, we want to help you do this better. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with Thrivent and being really grateful for the ways that they were coming alongside us and the local churches around us. And if you're interested at all in learning more, I cannot encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter, at Common Good Talk, plus wherever it is you get your podcast. if that is you. Thank you so much for listening there as well. And I came across a really fascinating article, something that Brian and I have talked about a lot this last year, and I love the headline. It says, okay, Boomer, really? Here's what <laughs> needs to be said to the younger generations. And we have on the phone the author of that article, Michael Levin. Welcome to the show, sir. Uh, Brian and Ian, thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. It's our pleasure. I- I'm wondering if you could, just by way of introduction, uh, tell our audience anything you think they would like to know about you and who you are. Oh, sure. I'm a New York Times bestselling author, a contributor to Fox News, and I run a book ghostwriting business called the Michael Levin Writing Company, which is michaellevinwrites.com. So that's why. Right on. So this article that we were reading, uh, like we said, it's called OK Boomer, Really? Uh, Here's what needs to be said to the younger generations. As Ian said, we talk about this all the time, it feels like. Uh, and now I've got uh, I got a daughter in high school and some kids in elementary school who who like to use the phrase OK Boomer to me, even though I'm not in that generation. I'm wondering your thoughts about uh, what is the result when we don't do a good job understanding generational differences and helping bridge that gap? See, that's a great question. You end up with the world the way it is today, where you have the older generation looking at younger people and saying, you know, we gave you this great world and you totally screwed it up. You're staring into your phones, you're covered with tattoos, uh, you, you don't know how to look people in the eye, you're losing the concept of empathy. There's an app on your phone called The Phone. You don't even know how to call people or talk to people, <laughs> you know, leave a voicemail. And then younger people look at older people and say, okay, Boomer, like your time has passed, you're an idiot because you're not as technologically savvy as we are. Right. So you have people talking past each other generationally the same way you do having people talk past each other on the left and on the right politically, and it's just unfortunate. I think that's what you get uh, when, uh, in a situation like this. So what I'm really curious about then is what are some ways that we can actually take a step forward? Because I don't, I mean, it feels like generational dissonance has always been there. Maybe it's more amplified now because of technology. Maybe not. But like, what recommendations would you give for people wanting to get better at this, whether they're on the older or younger end of the spectrum? Yeah, it's a great question. It's probably not what I did in the article. I called uh, younger people self-absorbed, handcrafted, mocha latte-sipping, technology-obsessed, phone-staring, ridiculously tattooed, backwards baseball cap-wearing layabouts 
this greatest desire to spend the rest of their life smoking medical marijuana in their parents' basement. That's probably not the best, uh, probably not the best way to get a dialogue going. <laughs> yeah, the show's all about finding common ground, Michael. So it's yeah, I'm looking for that common I mean, I think, the, I think the starting point is we have to put the phones down and mm. start looking each other in the eye again. Yeah, right. Uh, it, you know, we're, we're really... It, it took it took thousands of years for humans to develop the concept of empathy, which allowed people to form into family units and then community units and then societies and civilizations. And all that is getting, you know, thousands of years of human development are getting wiped out in a decade hmm. uh, since the iPhone came in. Hmm. So maybe let's start off by putting the phones down and looking at each other in the eye and just having a sense of empathy and compassion for each other instead of uh, just having sort of you know, the courage of the keyboard and saying snarky things online, uh, which yeah. admittedly I did. <laughs> I did. But let me say you did it really well. <laughs> so thank you. You're welcome. So I'm wondering what you think, what would you think the younger generation most misunderstands about the older generations and then vice versa? What do the older generations most misunderstand about the younger generations? Yeah, that's a great question. I think from, I think the younger, younger folks ought to recognize the technology and the capacity to be uh, uh, just flying around your phone. Uh, isn't everything, and that there's much more to life, hmm. and that there's a civilization that exists that is deeper and broader and more meaningful than whatever you can access on your phone. And your timeline is not an accurate picture of all of reality. And then I think older folks, uh, we need to we need to look at, at younger people with that same empathy that we're asking for from them, and saying, you know, this is all they know. This is the world they know. They were born with a phone in their hands, right? And if there isn't an app for something, it's hard for them to kind of get their minds around it. Uh, and, 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 and again, it really just comes down to trying to engage and talk and, uh, and, 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 and get past and get past the differences that are exacerbated by technology. That's good. All right, so I mentioned it a little earlier, but now I, I'm really curious. Has this gap always existed? Like, did you feel this way about the older generation when you were in your 20s? Absolutely. I, I was convinced that they were idiots. Hmm. And I, you know, I still, <laughs> and I, still, I still think they are. I mean, what it comes down to is that, I mean, that's not true. What it comes down to is that the mistakes that people make uh, make a much bigger impression on you when you're a younger person mm-hmm. than all the good things that people get right. Oh, so, interesting. You know, when, when you see people in their, you know, when you're in your 20s and you're looking at people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, screwing up their lives, screwing up their marriages, um, you know, getting drunk, acting like the world's oldest teenager, you slap your forehead and say, how did they get that age and be so dumb hmm. and do such dumb things? And then, you know, the question is, okay, you know, uh, do, do you have uh, 20 years life experience now that you're 40 or 40 years life experience now that you're 60? Or do you just have one life, one year life experience repeated over and over and over? Hmm. So, you know, are, are, are you, are you living smarter? You know, it's not just are you living better. Do you have more money? Do you have more stuff? But are you living? Are you living smarter to the point where you're not making the stupid mistakes that you've seen other people make, so that younger people can look at you and say, "Hey, you know, that guy's got it together." And that's, I think, that's the question. That's really good. I'm wondering if you're hopeful. Like, try to say a generation from now. Uh, do you think this is something uh, at our current trajectory? This kind of generational divide is just going to get worse, uh, or do you have some hope about this? I'm always hopeful. I'm, I'm, I'm just hopeful by nature. And I think things things tend to correct generationally. You know, I mean, people look at the people look at their parents' generation and say, "I'm not going to be like that." Mm-hmm. That's crazy. So I'm I'm hoping that people who are younger than sort of the technology obsessed, uh, uh, you know, people who are 
coming of age now are going to look at their parents, you know, when they when these when these when these kids come into existence and just say, you know, I don't want to be like that. I want to have a world that's broader than my phone. Mm. I want to be able to have eye contact. I want to talk to people. I want to be with people as opposed to making my world so small and so narrow that all that matters are the apps on my phone and my timeline and, uh, you know, my, my, my snap face and my, <laughs> my, 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 my face gram or whatever. <laughs> yeah, nailed it. That was good. <laughs> okay, so you're, you're a writer, and I imagine you're always writing. There's always irons in the fire. What, what are you working on right now? What's coming up next? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. I, I, as I said, I run a ghostwriting company, so right now we've got, and we've got about 20 or 30 books cooking at different you know, stages, and I've got a team of writers. I'm, I personally write books kind of rarely, but I'm working on two right now. One is about a, uh, a guy from India who comes to America as a basketball star and teaches meditation and teaches about uh, Hinduism for a client. Wow. And, um, yeah, which is kind of fun. And it's a really fun story. I'm working on it right now. And, uh, and then I'm you know, doing a financial advisor fable. Uh, you basically, it's whatever comes in the door. We know if people have a positive message and a, and, uh, and a positive, uh, and they're positive people, they're, you know, good people with something important to say, whether it's personal, professional, financial, or whatever, we, we, we turn it into a book and that's what we do. And then in my downtime, I write articles for Fox News and I, I fulminate and criticize with the world, and I turn into Get Off My Long Guy. <laughs> Which is why we had you on. We like Get Off My Long Guy. Just standing with the bathrobe, shaking the paper at cars that drive by. I get that. Yeah, that's, that's me. You know, that's, that's, that's exactly right on. me. And if, I, and if I've got my shorts on, it's a great day. <laughs> You're in good company, my man. Where yes. can people go to learn more about you? Oh, that's very nice of you. It's Michael Levin Wright, W R I T E S dot com. That's outstanding, Michael. Thank you so much for joining thank us today. You. Brian and Ian, you're great guys. Thanks for having me. Thank we you. Appreciate it so much. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, hey, friends. Welcome to The Common Good. I almost don't want to say anything just to keep hearing this song. Wait for it. It's a good song. Yeah, that just grooves, right? It's good. Your real calling in radio is to be a DJ, so you can nah, just be listening to music. I don't think I have the uh, the wherewithal. I'm not, you know, some people, what's the movie where they, they all work at the record store? Mm, high Fidelity. Okay. You know, where they're, I mean, it's just every fact about every record and every lineup and every tour and every, I'm not that good with information in general, but certainly not to that degree, but yep. uh Oh, you agree? <laughs> you're like, yeah, you're right. Go you are bad at that. Um, all right, so you can find us on Facebook. Not what I meant, the Common but Good I Radio see. Show, yes. 1160hope.com slash The Common Good on Twitter at Common Good Talk, plus wherever it is you get podcasts, easy for me to say. Mm-hmm. And uh, we will soon know whether or not uh, Alexa will direct you to us. By tomorrow. By tomorrow. I'm going to forget. <laughs> <laughs> I hope this becomes the thing that like outrages our audience. Yeah. Like, you know, I liked him, but Brian kept promising this Alexa thing. And then I thought, man, if, if he's going to lie Just about that. Do it. <laughs> All right. So we've been, uh, we've been reading and citing from missioalliance.org uh, a good deal more as of late. Just cause I think they, they draw from a really, really interesting, smart, thoughtful collection of writers from all around the country 
And uh, I don't know what it is, but something in the last two or three months just feels like they continue to have things that just strike me as so timely, yeah. so prophetic, and so necessary for the church. So the the headline simply is 10 Hopes and Prayers for the Next 10 Years. We did a little bit of this uh-huh. toward the end of the year. Uh-huh. We shared kind of some personal goals. Um, this list is way better than whatever you or I said, by the way. Just <laughs> fair warning. I'm reading it like, oh, yeah, I should have said that. Oh, that one's better, too. But it's a, it's just a list of 10 uh, kind of pray. I'll just read the beginning to yeah, kind of give it some context. Um, I'm not much given to pro. Oh, I can't even say that <laughs> procrastination. That's not what that is. Prognostication. <laughs> Prognostication. Uh, these days, when I look back over the last <laughs> ten years of so my own funny. life, <laughs> very little has gone according to plan. Which is, I suppose, as it should be. After all, Jesus did say that uh, that the has the. Is that a typo? Uh, yes, clearly. <laughs> that as the wind blew wherever it pleases, so also would the lives of those who are born of the Spirit. That's from John 3. We never quite know where the Spirit or our lives or the church born of and carried along by the Spirit is going to end up other than in the arms of Jesus. And that is so much of the fun of it. But mm. I do have some hopes and prayers for the next 10 years for the church in North America. My prayer for the church is that we dot, dot, dot. So here, here are the 10 and we don't have a lot of time. So I'm going to run through the yeah. 10 and then if we have time, we'll react. Go for it. No, go ahead. Become more spiritual. Number one, I realize that word is capable of abuse, especially when it implies some kind of contempt for conditions of your creed, creatureliness. But when I use the word spiritual, I mean the recognition that our creatureliness sits within the transcendent reality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that to awaken to that reality is to have our deepest thirsts quenched. So number one, become more spiritual. Uh, Number two, recapture wonder. Can I just be honest here for a minute? This is the author, not me. Oh, <laughs> I wasn't reading along. I'm like, yes, go tell me. Oh, no, go ahead, Ian. But you had like this epiphany right I there. I just read that it so funny. naturally. <laughs> and you looked at me like, I, I just did look here? at you. Yeah, I could tell you were looking at me. Uh, there are times that I look out on the current landscape of the church, and I'm frankly bored stiff. The same conversations, the same tired arguments, the same empty antagonisms, recycled ad nauseum. It all seems at times so mecha- mechanistic, gosh, so rote, so predictable. The sense of wildness and surprise that should be characterized of the those who are born of the spirit uh, and born along by the wind often feels absent to me. The late Robert W. Jensen once said that the basic difference between a living God and a dead God is that a living God can still surprise you. Oh, that's Mm. so good. So I won't read the rest of that one, but the idea that wonder is actually this really integral, important component of the church that is easy for us to sort of just miss. And these connect to each other because then he says, in order to experience wonder, experience this, I have a feeling that we are going to have to dot, dot, dot. Number three, slow down. I want the Church of North America in the next 10 years to swear off the haste that Mm. has become so characteristic of its life. God, let us remember, is not, has never been, and never will be in a hurry. Creation testifies to this. Uh, It goes on to say later, I want the Church of North America in the next 10 years uh, to slow down, that there is an essential slowness to the work of God, a leisurely sacred beauty. If you're moving too quickly, you will miss it. Oh, see, these do all connect. This is so well written. Well written. Uh, so living into this will help us better, which is number four. Listen better. Uh, one of the first Bible verses I learned as a kid was James 1, 19 to 20. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow mm-hmm. to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. The correlation between listening, speaking, and anger fascinates me. Anger, James says, rises in relationship to our haste to be heard. By the same token, it diminishes in direct and inverse relationship to our desire to listen and understand. Indeed, the very act of listening tends to create the kind of non-defensive and empathy 
sympathetic posture that cuts anger at the root. It's so good. At number five, it says, for so number four, if we can listen better, then we are likely to, number five, set a new tone for public discourse. Hmm. Maybe I'm just a wild idealist here, but I really do believe and pray that the church, anchored in the reality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the gracious God who has all the time in the world, will set a new tone for public discourse. We can show the world how to stop treating politics as though it were the ultimate battle of good versus evil, us versus them. In fact, in a recent article in The Atlantic, Katie Martin quotes George Washington's farewell address in which Washington said, The alternate domination of one faction over another, sharpened by the spirit of revenge, natural to party dissension, which in different ages and countries has perpetrated the most horrid enormities, is Mm. itself a frightful uh, despotism. So basically, we need to set a new tone for public discourse. So this next one I'm a little angry about because uh, I started an organization called Beauty in the Common. And it feels like he just stole this. <laughs> Number six, embrace the beauty of our common life. We learned from Stanley Harwash long ago that the Church of Jesus Christ does not have a politics. The church is a politic. How I want uh, how I want to see us live into this in the next 10 years. I want us to remember that our life together is a witness to the way that the world will one day be when God in Christ is uh is all in all a reality that Paul claims is true of the body of Christ even now, Colossians 3.11. He goes on to say, In Christ we learn to embrace one another across political, ethnic, gender, and socioeconomic divides, letting his life-giving peace reign in our collective hearts. I think that is so subversive, but Mm -hmm. also so, so important. We're not going to get to the rest of these. Let's just keep going. Number seven, no one needs to, quote, win. In the church, there are no winners and losers. We simply don't look at life that way. Grounded in the abundance of life, we believe it is not a competitive struggle between the haves and the have-nots, but rather a koinonia in which God's bounty is shared in common. No need to win. That's really good. Uh, Number eight, accept vulnerability and weakness as the way of Jesus. I have great hope that in the next 10 years, we will continue to internalize and live out Henry Nouwen's vision of the wounded healer, the healer who has allowed the spirit to transform his own wound into sources and signs of hope and who sees vulnerability, weakness, and limitation, not as an impediment to the gospel, but rather as an occasion for the, the great paradox of the gospel to shine forth knowing that God wins the world not through strength but through the weakness and folly of the broken crucified body of the Lord Jesus Christ that's so good so number nine lead together one of the most hopeful signs of renewal uh, over, uh, over the last decade, in my view, of the author is the movement towards greater plurality at all levels of church leadership. This doesn't mean that there are no clear leaders in our midst, only that when no one needs to win, when life is not a zero-sum game, when our differences and our weaknesses are not a, a liability, when there is nothing to fear and nothing to hide, then we are lib- liberated to really share the yoke with one another. Shared leadership. Okay, this last one. I'm just going to read the whole one because it's so good. Go Number 10. In uh, what is it called again? Ten hopes and prayers for the next ten years. Number ten, learn once again the ancient wisdom that God is our all. For when God is our all, when when we realize that in him we already have all that we could ever need or hope for, then we will love silence more than speaking and so be liberated to listen. We will love poverty more than riches and so be liberated to be generous. We will love obscurity more than notoriety and so be liberated to live out of the limelight. We will love solitude as much as community and so be liberated from the desire to use others Mm. and we will love powerlessness more than power and so be liberated to lose everything daily for Jesus. Man, that's such a good picture. Do you see why I said this is so much better than anything that we said at the end of the year? (laughs) I do. That's so good. Well, coming up next, another article actually out of the Missio Alliance called The Limits of Experience. This again is a a topic that we have circled and danced around a good deal but never really taken a deep dive. So we're going to talk about experience in the journey of faith coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're there.
Hey everyone, it's Ian Simpkins here, and after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of piqued with regards to what kind of organization this was, and it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. In the second hour of the show, we're going to talk about therapy, how to redeem the broken years of our past, and a little bit about the importance of experience. That's coming up here on The Common Good. Welcome to Hour 2 of The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web if you like. If you're a podcaster, liking and subscribing and reviewing and sharing all of that, it really, really does help us out a lot. If there's ever a show in particular that you thought was interesting or intriguing or you just passionately disagreed with, uh, any help on that front does really help us out a lot, and we appreciate that very much. You can also go to 1160hope.com slash the common good and on Twitter at common good talk. And uh, I think this is the first time we've done back to back org articles, but they both were just so darn good. Um, I couldn't help myself. So this one's called The Limits of Experience, mm-hmm. and it's by Chris Beckert. It says, I've always felt bad that my faith story does not involve a, quote, religious experience, which have you ever felt? I mean, you and I were both raised in the church. Totally resonate with like this. Like when you go and hear a speaker and you're like, man, I was dealing crack. Yeah. And I stole 40 cars, yeah. and I was a spy. And you're like, oh, man, I got baptized yeah. when I was eight. I know. I like. I never don't remember the church. So yes. you definitely remember feeling like, oh, my story's deficient. Yes. Okay. Totally. What do you say to people that feel that way when they come to you? Like, I don't feel like I have a cool story. Uh, now I've gotten to the point of talking to them about, you know, all of our stories are significant. And also, we don't need to apologize for God's faithful work from a young age through our parents. Um, but I also acknowledge I have felt that because what do we do as churches? We hold up the dramatic story, too. That's the person who shares on a Sunday morning. That's the person we pull up on Easter. Like we we build into this by the way that we um, yeah, right. kind of highlight the dramatic. Well, he, he says um, the story of coming to faith is a bit like Mary Magdalene trailing Jesus for a couple of years. Dr. Luke, who investigated all the stories for himself and the Ethiopian eunuch who had pieces uh, who had pieces come together that made sense. Yes, there have been times in my life when my experience of faith involved fireworks and crazy encounters and intense feelings, but hardly at the beginning of my story. Sometimes well-meaning people in those storytelling circles wanted to confirm that, yes, indeed, I once confessed Jesus as my Savior, whether by praying a prayer or otherwise. I knew that they really wanted to know if I was still a heathen, and I told them to relax. Years later, I learned to describe my coming of faith story as a parable involving a young girl and the boy next door whom she ends up marrying. I asked my audience when it was in the story that the two actually fell in love versus when they realized they were in love. And most of the time, people get the point most of the time. But for many (laughs) others, experience determines validity. Make that a certain experience. 
many of those tell your own story circles as well as sometimes the way the the church preaches and presents what the track record looks like for an authentic faith story leave me questioning the primacy primacy primacy, primacy. i think it might be primacy I think so. I have no idea. I, I'm, I've always learned primacy. It's probably you're probably right. Primacy and prevalence of the very element of experience itself in our story of faith. And I, so I, I'm wondering if you feel this as well. Like this, um, I don't know if pressure is the right word, but the glorification of the experience yes. of the story. Um, how do you navigate that? Well, because uh, you do experience it, and it's also this like this experience as in like there was this one dramatic moment, right? right. There's this like boom, and 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 the scales fell off. When I look at my own life, I can't. I mean, I can't point to a conversion moment in my life. Like if you're like, tell me the day and time you prayed the prayer. I'm yeah, like, I right. have no idea. Right, right. It's more even the beginning of it is that long obedience in the same direction, right? Learning what it means to follow Jesus, kind of growing into that. And I that's why I appreciate this story, because the story of like even, you know, dating the boy next door, the, the, I, I get that. So it says uh, philosophers, economists, advertisers, sociologists, and designers all support the claim that we live in the age of experience, replacing the agricultural and industrial ages. What was known as the information age has morphed into this new phase that is centered less on the information we're consuming and more on how we consume and broadcast that information. It's why specs and descriptions and numbers and evaluations and business stats are all secondary to marketers who create commercials and ads that make us feel like we're a part of the story rather than merely purchasing a phone or an SUV. We talked about this a little bit yesterday when it came to the Super Bowl commercials. Yes. The ones that really stand out are the ones that are like, oh, that heart tug. They're not talking about benefits and features. It's like, be a part of this story mm-hmm. with us, right? Which again... From a biblical perspective, I don't think it's a bad thing. Like, feel like you're included in this story. Like, we probably at times preach like that, don't we? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and there's there's something to be said about it, right? Like, all the stories in Scripture, or even when you hear other people's stories of their experiences, yeah, uh, it's good to be like, hey, insert yourself in the story. Stories relate. Stories are compelling. Um, it, the danger of this whole conversation, though, becomes like, Ian, tell me your dramatic story. And you're like, ah. I don't really have one. And then you are made to feel deficient. Like right. God hasn't done anything dramatic. You being saved is, is ultimately the, as dramatic as it needs to be or can be. Right. Uh, but we do do this in subtle ways and sometimes not so subtle ways. Yeah. It, it gives some other descriptions as to like how we can understand the role of experience. And a yep. lot of people in the scripture have this very obvious dramatic experience. But then it says the danger of experience alone. Pastor and theologian Greg Boyd tells a story in his book, Inspired Imperfection of an encounter he once had with two Mormons who showed up at his door when he was in college. After a lively discussion, as the young men were about to leave, one of them said that it was written in the Book of Mormon that if anyone read it with a sincere heart, God would reveal to them that it was divinely inspired, and that was how he became a Mormon. Mm. Greg was intrigued and actually began reading the text, but he did not experience what the young Mormon had. And then he says this. This is page 73 of his book. What troubled me most was that, like this Mormon fellow, I based my faith largely on the dramatic experiences of God. Uh, This was when I first began to toil over how much credibility I should give to my own spiritual experiences. If this guy was mistaken, despite having an experience that was powerful enough to convince him the Book of Mormon was true, then I had to admit the possibility that I might be mistaken, my dramatic experiences of God notwithstanding, which meant that when it comes to determining the truth of any belief system or any religious book, we have to appeal to considerations other than people's subjective experiences. What do you think of that? 
I mean, it's powerful. And again, it keeps going back to that same story. Uh, when it comes to determining the truth of any belief system, we have to appeal to considerations other than their subjective experiences. Because we've all been around people where they're, A, again, made to feel shame because of their lack of story. But also because you hear their story and you're like, that doesn't sound like there sounds like some holes in that. Right. Uh, that and, and so I think the word subjective there is is helpful. John Calvin, it goes on to say, wrote uh, said that human beings have a faculty called the census. A divinitatis, 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 <laughs> that allows us to be aware of God's presence, actions, or dispositions resulting in experiences of, of him. Uh, but before someone attacks claims of religious experience, they must first address the question as to whether the claims behind the experience and the who and the what the experience shows are actually true. Uh, it's enough not to hold on to a moment alone because people in most religious traditions are able to make the same argument about their own religious experiences. So... I think this author here is trying to say our religious experiences uh, can be subjective and anything subjective, uh, solely subjective, can become dangerous. Well, and I think that's also a much it's a part of a much broader question, too, because how do you in any way effectively help people find a rootedness beyond, you know, you show up and you're like, ah, the songs didn't really do it for me. Mm-hmm. The message didn't really move me. The... Ah, the environment didn't give me the chills that I'm looking for. You just move yep. on, right? Yep. Go, well, go find a place that does that for you, which we know, at least in part, that like a lot of just the newness of a new church or a new preacher or a new yes. band will accomplish some of that for a time. So I think I think experience needs to be obviously part of it. Otherwise, why would he include? Why would there be included such obvious you know examples of that in scripture? Right. But experience alone. Is I just feel like easily toppled over once the experienced dopamine like wears off. That's right? a great point. I love this way he says it. He says, in evangelism, a focus on experience alone creates a two-dimensional seesaw hmm. from which it is just as easy to be thrown off and bruised as it is to have a good time. Uh, it creates, yeah, and, and so it's... Uh, uh, Yet only experience. I like how you brought up the worship service, right? How often do we talk about worship gatherings as in how it made me feel or did I enjoy it? Did I what was my experience as opposed to uh, something outside of just our experience? I really think that this author is hitting on some good stuff here. Let me just read a little bit more before we wrap up. Yep. Um, It says experience is merely one possible edge which is then connected to the others. In this way, a spiritual experience that leads one to recognize Jesus as the Son of God should not be allowed to remain on one edge, but should always be connected to Scripture, tradition, and reason. In our preaching and teaching, we must communicate the Christian life that goes beyond the altar call and hand-raising, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer termed and experienced himself, the cost of discipleship lived out in the church. Someone who is convinced of Christ through Scripture and reason may not have a spiritual experience or even an absolute aha moment on their journey. Which I think is such an important call in a pretty, uh, I feel like we're a pretty experience heavy culture. Do you find that to be true? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you, how did something make you feel? What's going from one experience to the next experience? Um, I talk about this with my kids, right? right? Like I've told you, I love to give them experiences, but much of life is in those between the experiences. What's, yeah. What are the disciplines? Uh, what are the rhythms? Yeah, that's good, man. All right, coming up next, how God can redeem the lost years of our broken past. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web 
on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter. We're, we're climbing on Twitter, by the way. I think uh, 38. Done. Now, nice. <laughs> we're making our way to 50. <laughs> it's amazing the difference between Facebook and Twitter. Uh, just in general? or In terms of people, like we've got a pretty robust following on Facebook, and Twitter <laughs> has kind of always been kind of a limp. Well, I wonder what we can learn from that. I don't know. I don't know. Somebody did ask me the other day if we have an Instagram account. And what did you tell them? Uh, no, we do not. <laughs> That's better than what's Instagram. Yes. I know what the gram is. <laughs> no one calls it that. I did have a couple of people ask when the podcast would be put on YouTube. Oh. And I was like, I don't know the point of that. And then like five people were like, That's how we consume podcasts is via YouTube. On YouTube, really? Mm-hmm. That's a very common thing apparently. Okay. I was like, Well, there's nothing really to see and they're like, Oh yeah, just one camera of you guys, we'd watch that. I'm like, You, you would? Wow. That seems odd, right? It does. Maybe we give it a try. All right. How do we make that happen? I- that is above my pay grade. First a coat rack, <laughs> First then, a, coat rack. then a camera. <laughs> All right, so uh, I want to talk about how God can redeem the lost years of our broken past. But before we do that, Brian Fromm, throw some words our way. Yeah, the new year is underway, and our friends at InTouch Ministries want to bless you with a complimentary wall calendar. Nailed it. Called Blessed to Be the Church. You're doing it, Brian. Featuring Charles Stanley's original photography. So proud of you. Thank you for the compliment. Oh, uh, His original great. photography of churches around the world. An inspirational Bible verse from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and a motivational quote from Dr. Stanley accompany each photo. Get yours today absolutely free at 1160hope.com slash contest. And everyone who signs up will be entered to win a copy of the Charles Stanley Life Principles Bible. Sign up today at 1160hope.com slash contest. Really good job. Thank you. All right. How God can redeem the lost years of a broken past. He actually begins uh, talking about how often music specifically has a way of sort of transporting him back to a season in his life. Do you mm-hmm. find the same to be true? Like you like hear a song, you're like, I'm instantly 23 again. Yes. I was cool. just telling you, I listen to the lithium channel all the time on Sirius because it, part of it takes me back to high school. Okay. So here's what I'm curious about then, because you were mentioning this, the station, this channel on Sirius XM, right? Not a sponsor of the show, but nope. I wanted them to, you know, get their proper due. It typically fills you with like happy nostalgia. Emotion. Yeah. Nostalgia. yeah. Do you find, the opposite can also be true. You hear, her, uh, you hear a certain song, you're like, oh, man, that's the song that she broke up to me, too. Oh, that's what was playing was in that car wreck or, that, or whatever. Like, it, Do you have any of those associations that you can think of? That's weird because I totally should. But if you, you, really if you followed up with what song would that be, I, would, like, I don't know. Do you, you probably do. Well, I, I think we shared the roller rink story once, right? The, uh, oh, tell me again because I remember being funny. Don't, don't tell me. She's not worth crying for when I, when I i went to the bathroom came back and the girl i had a crush on was couple skating with somebody else every time i hear that song i'm like instantly in fifth grade again or whatever you do couple skate oh uh, that's funny is that right fifth grade couple skate feels like fifth grade i wish that my kids were more into roller skating it feels like that's gone out Said of vogue no dad ever what uh, it feels like that's gone out of vogue i have great memories of roller skating <sighs> i just kind of want to let that to live as a soundbite Maybe that'll be our first common good outing. Get our listeners no, at a roller skating oh, rink. Gosh, that's a, that's a terrible idea. I'm in. Count me in. <laughs> so anyway, he's talking about how um, music for him in particular sort of reminds him of some pretty broken, painful seasons mm-hmm. in his past. And uh, he's 
remembering them via a song. It says, those years often feel incredibly lost when I dwell on my failures and mental struggles. I feel like a, like I totally threw that season down the drain due to mm. my battle with OCD, depression, and struggling career as an actor and a troubled soul. And yet, I can't help but believe that God has found a way to redeem those years through the writing and work I do now discussing the topic of mental health, particularly in the church. What once destroyed me has now become a way to speak hope and life to others. Tell me that back in 2008, and I would refer you to my psychologist. <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut, the famous author and thinker, once said, those years weren't lost. They simply weren't the way I'd planned them. Um, what if he's right? Especially as a follower of Jesus, is our broken past a complete waste, or can God use even the worst parts of our journeys? Is anything beyond the grace of Jesus, even our past? Hmm. What would you say to somebody, just as a pastor, that brings to you that question? Oh, I would say nothing's beyond the grace of Jesus, right? We don't, we never uh, outsin the the uh, the good news of the gospel. We, ne- you know, the, the reach of the cross. You're never like your Jesus. Is never like, well, your sin is way too far. Um, the, there is a flip side to this, and that is that sometimes when we go down this road, we just like revel in our brokenness, right? Yeah, like, right. I just want to always highlight my brokenness. Well, God's going to love me anyway. Uh, and so that's the, that is one of the dangers. But when we're talking about our broken past, hmm. uh, it really feels like the good news is that, no, that the grace of the gospel is good news for your past, regardless of how broken it is. Uh, and And so... Uh, is anything beyond the grace of Jesus, even our past? I think the good news is part of the good news is we could say absolutely not. It's it's yeah. uh, it is not beyond the grace. I, I would assume you agree with that. I do agree with that. Again, I think it's one thing to believe that theologically. 100%. It's a much different thing to actually to not just have some sort of intellectual assent or even just hope for the future. I know plenty of people um, who can get halfway there and yeah. say. No, now that I've experienced Jesus the way that I have, I believe that he can do something with my future, but I really, really did screw up those 10 years. Mm. I've met with people who, you know, I, yeah, that my marriage, that marriage will never come back to me. My, that kid, uh, is not interested in communicating with me that financial decision, that addiction, the damage I've done to my brain, you know, I, I I feel like that is a reality that a lot of people live in. Like, Oh, I believe in the future hope and promise that Jesus offers, but I don't see any conceivable universe where the mistakes I've done actually can be redeemed. Yeah. At best, they can be forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's an, a, there's an important difference there between, um, you know, uh, can, can there be redemption? Yes. Are there still consequences for our past actions? Yeah. And, uh, you know, because God can redeem it and God and, and the grace of Jesus Christ can extend over what I've even my worst sins uh, doesn't mean that that there aren't consequences in your marriage. Yeah. In your right, job, right. in your relation, whatever else it might be, your parenting. Uh, and then sometimes I think we get that wrong. Well, if there's forgiveness, there should be no more consequences for what I've done. Well, no, that's not true either. Right. Uh, there are still wounds there. But but ultimately, there is redemption in Christ where you're. Uh, your your brokenness can be made whole, uh, and and yeah, even sometimes we talk too quickly in terms of God can use my story. That's not really the point. Right. Uh, God can redeem my story, and if He uses that in the other in the lives of other people, then wonderful. But 
Um, I do think that, that there are people who go, mm, God could never love me. And I think the beauty of the gospel is that's not true. Well, and I think, too, some people maybe can believe that God loves them but doesn't like them. Mm. I think that needs to be talked about more. Like, well, he loves me like in a Jesus loves the little children kind of sense. Yeah. But he's actually pretty annoyed with me. That, I mm. think, for a lot of people is a, a much harder hurdle to get over. And I do, like, I feel very grateful that in the work of a pastor, I've now been able to see a number of families, not only where the family was restored, uh, and the marriage came back from the brink of destruction. But now they could meet with younger couples where, mm. you know, there was infidelity or there was an addiction or like I've actually seen it firsthand how God can use just terrible, horrific, yeah. Yeah. toxic decisions and not just like forgive a person in some nebulous sense, but to actually, you know, OK, hey, I used to be addicted to coke and now I'm actually helping coach young people who are in the same place. Like yeah. there's a, that's what I think redemption actually looks like. It's not just a, all right, uh, your debt's forgiven or your slate is wiped clean mm-hmm. to actually use that which was dark and toxic and a fracturing of shalom, not just to say, all right, we'll move on from that, but to actually use those pieces to bring healing and hope to other people. It's actually why I like this, the way this author ends. It says, when yeah. you look back on your past, imagine with me for a moment that God can use that pain and heartache. Imagine what it would look like for you to make a positive difference in the lives of others from the years that once felt lost and devoid of meaning. Wouldn't it be incredible to know that your life meant something even at your worst? If God can use my mess of a life, I know he can redeem the years in your life you wish you could get back. Your past is not lost in the void of time and space. God is using you now and can use even what once was what once was for his purposes and glory. There is hope and redemption for even the most broken of pasts. That's good. That's really good. I think that's really good, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, coming up next, uh, this is going to be a little bit of a how-to kind of a segment, but the title is simply this, How to Start Therapy. Mm. You know, we've done a lot of work in the last year to try and destigmatize therapy, yes. but for a lot of people still, though, it's this big question mark, how do I actually do it? We're going to talk about that coming up next here on The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. Our two smiling faces right there mm-hmm. with a little green. But what is that by? Is it a stamp? What is it? What's our logo? I don't know. <laughs> it is kind of. Th- I've never, never thought kind of, about it's it. Kind of, it's not in front of me right now. It's kind of stampish. Yes. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> Whose idea? <laughs> we look like mail carriers. That's right. <laughs> really smiley white tooth mail carriers. Not actual white tooth. Photoshop white tooth. Yes. That's right. Shh, no, I, I no. They all know. Please. No teeth are that white. Uh, you can also go to 1160hope.com slash the common good on Twitter at common good talk and wherever it is you get your podcast. But before we jump into this next story, Brian Fromm is going to give you a fake liner. Brian Fromm, off the top of your head, give us a fake advertisement for something that doesn't exist. Go. I got nothing. Oh, that's that, you just threw that on me. I, I immediately was going to tell you about Charles Stanley's. Uh... No, 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 not a real thing. Fake liner, fake product, and go. You are so putting me on the spot here. <laughs> it's got to be a fake product or something that we don't normally. Which talk one would about. be easier? Oh, well, I can tell you about the Milky Way that I just consumed. That mm-hmm. Milky Way was not just filling, but it also was gooey oh, and boy. scrumptious and was the best Milky Way I've eaten in a while. So you, too, should pick up a Milky Way today. 
That is at MilkyWay.com. <laughs> can you, do you think you can order Milky Ways at MilkyWay.com? I, I am not even going to Google MilkyWay.com. Uh, Wait, why? I don't know. Do you think it's risky? <laughs> go ahead. Mm, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now you. Go John, liner. Something John, okay, so we got to get to this next story. It's from NPR.org. <laughs> that was the most random thing you've ever done. <laughs> Fake liner. Go. I was like, why? Hey, where'd that come from? That was good. Thank you. You seem a little... Um, I'm glad I had a Milky Way, though. Because <laughs> otherwise we have the Starbucks over here. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I was surprised you didn't go Panera, but... All right, so, oh, so one of the things... Yes. And we've had a couple of really... Really smart, insightful guests who have helped us kind of um, expand our understanding of therapy and counseling, and especially as it relates to the church. Unfortunately, the church doesn't necessarily have a great track record with talking about issues of mental health or advocating for mental health professionals. Uh, sometimes that gets played out in the way that pastors don't recognize the specific training for therapists and counselors and will sometimes try to do the work even though they don't have the training themselves, which often mm-hmm. can be f- further destructive, um, which is not helpful. So this NPR article begins this way. Feeling anxious, overwhelmed, unhappy, not sure what you're feeling at all. These might be signs that your check engine light is on and seeing a therapist could help. If the mere thought of trying to find help seems overwhelming, you're not alone. Plenty of people put off seeking treatment uh, or try to ignore symptoms because mental health is often easier to brush off as not urgent. That's very true. Uh, We feel like there's a hierarchy of pain and if our problem doesn't feel big enough, we wait until we're basically having the equivalent of an emotional heart attack before somebody We'll make that call, says Lori Gottlieb, a psychotherapist, uh, advice columnist, and author of the book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Mm. This story is adapted from an episode of Life Kit, NPR's podcast with tools to help uh, or to help you get together. Listen to the podcast at the top of the page, which you aren't looking at if you're listening on the radio. Anyway, it gives four tips uh, to help make therapy kind of work for you. And I think, and again, I haven't listened to the episode, so I can't vouch for it. But the four tips are pretty helpful because... If we've even been moderately successful in the last year, hopefully we've begun a conversation to kind of destigmatize right. therapy and counseling and mental health. But even if it's destigmatized, it's still going to feel really overwhelming to actually go do it. True. So I want to get just really, really practical and offer some suggestions for doing that. So why don't you talk about number one? Yeah, number one is a big one. Acknowledge stigmas that might be holding you back from seeking help. Yeah. The fear of being stigmatized can keep us from seeking treatment. Our attitudes about mental health likely come from family, friends, society at large, the media, and even our own inner voices. Uh, The reality is that people close to us often notice when we're having a hard time. In fact, they're likely catching some negative side effects since we tend to take things out on our loved ones. Remember, you're doing this for them, too. So the first good step is to reframe reframe therapy for yourself. Hmm. I think of seeing a therapist as just getting a second opinion about what you're doing. uh, And then you can decide from there. I think this is a huge one. It's that very first step that says, you know what? Me going to get help to see a counselor is not like we're not going to marriage counseling because we're about to get divorced. We're going to marriage counseling so that we don't ever get to that point. And the same is with individual counseling. I'm I'm going there to get healthy, not because I'm at some last ditch. You know, I'm about to. And I think we have the stigma that you go to a counselor when you're about to fall off the cliff. Right. When in reality, you get there. So you never get to the edge of that cliff in the first place. Well, and so we're hosting the Together Conference this Saturday, which is a marriage and family conference hosted Mm -hmm. at the Yellow Box. It's only like 60 bucks, too, by the way. If you're free this Saturday, come on out to the Yellow Box. But Mm -hmm. the way that we talk about it is uh, exactly what you were saying. It's like 
it's like a tune up on your car. Yes. You know, people treat therapy like you're saying, like, oh, my gosh, they're about to snap or they're about to get a divorce or whatever. And it's like, no, it's just it's kind of keeping a regular diagnostics. I think this is an important end to your first point, too. It says if you're concerned about privacy or disclosure, therapy is confidential. No one has to know. Licensed mental health professionals are bound by the law to protect your privacy unless someone is a threat to themselves or others. What goes on in therapy stays in therapy. Mm. My guess is not everyone knows that. Correct. Number two, find the right therapist or type of therapy for you. Start by making a list of potential therapists. If you have medical coverage, your insurance company can help make that list for you. Ask the company for some nearby professionals uh, who take your insurance. Psychology Today also has a database which you can use to search for providers in your area along with specialties, reviews, and experience. Once you've mm. identified a few potential therapists, reach out. Come up with some starter questions to ask when you interview them uh, over the phone. What experiences do they have working with your issue or community? How does a typical session work with them? Uh, do their available hours match yours? Asking questions before a visit can help you know what to expect. Um, but the author here says that the visit itself is the most important piece. The reality is you're not going to know if it's the right fit until you're actually sitting in a room with that person. If transportation, access, or motivation is a problem, online therapy like the app BetterHelp might be helpful. You can also ask to do Skype sessions, but make sure the therapist is licensed in your state. Otherwise, the therapist can't legally treat you, which mm. I did not even know. I didn't know that was That's a, interesting. even via Skype. That's a big deal. So they even get just encouraging people to ask the right pre-question, yep. I think, is a really important And part. here's a really important one after that. It's okay to move on to a different therapist or a kind of therapy altogether. If your current therapist doesn't fit a good fit, it's fine to, quote, break up with the person. You want to make sure you find somebody who actually feels like they get you. Hmm. Uh, says Joy Harden, a PhD host of the podcast Therapy for Black Girls. It's okay to say, hey, I think I may need something else. But after all that work of getting into therapy, it might feel daunting to dump someone and start over. Yeah, right. Uh, she Harden Bradford understands. She says it's important to push through that uncomfortable conversation and find someone that works for you. Plus, she says the therapist likely isn't going to be mad at you. It's part of our training, she says. And we know that that kind of thing happens. So uh, it's kind of like small groups in church, right? Some people yeah, don't get in small right. groups because they think they can never get out of them. Right. And that, that will stop you from ever starting. Which, I, again, we'll acknowledge can be tough. Yes. Like oh, uncomfortable, hard groups, conversation. All of that, right? Like, yep. Sorry, it's not. It's not you, you it's, it's me. me. Right. It's probably you. But. All right. Number four. Lastly, if you're comfortable with it, talk about therapy with others. If you're already in therapy and you feel comfortable, be open about it. John Kim, also known as the angry therapist. <laughs> <laughs> you like that, huh? That is funny. Says he found an online following when he opened up about his divorce and his own mental health treatment. I would share all the revelations I'm having about myself, says Kim, and how much that's helping my relationship at work, at home. And all of that happened because of me starting therapy. Kim says he wishes more people were open about going to therapy. He wants to see it normalized and encourages working, working it into a conversation. Just keep it subtle. No need to share details. Simply let others know that you're prioritizing your mental health. But Kim says it's important to remember that if you're sharing because you think someone else needs mental health support, it's best to show, not tell. The best way to get someone in therapy is by example. Mm. Doing therapy and living a different way where they notice to tell someone to go to therapy, that's not going to land well. Mm. Breaking down stigma takes time. By talking openly about therapy and demonstrating its benefits, you just may inspire someone else to try it out. Which yeah. seems so obvious. It's probably not that different from how we often talk about evangelism. Yeah. Like, hey, uh, like beating people over the head with the Bible, not a great way to go about it. But you just legitimately talking about like the difference Jesus has made in your life and your marriage and your finances. 
that at the very least is going to be intriguing to people. And I, I think that's helpful. I feel like we're hesitant to do it, most of us pastors, but that would probably go a long way and be actually really helpful if you were to say in the middle of a sermon, hey, I was talking to my counselor this week. Yeah, right. Like right. That, right, that alone breaks down some walls that I think are important. Can you think of the last time you heard a pastor actually say that? Um, no, although I, I do think we, we referenced Scott Saul's before someone like him. I, I hear him talk about his counselor, write about really? his counselor that I find really helpful. Yeah. And, and part of that is that in your mind, because he's already so, quote unquote, successful, is part of the fear like, well, I'm not a name like Saul, so I don't know that I want to out myself. Or... Yeah, I don't know. I think once you're once you're on that stage with that microphone, would there still that tendency to want to make it seem like you have it all together? Yeah, no so to be like, yeah, I was talking to my counselor, but I don't know why we don't do that more. I literally build into my sermons. I have a note to myself if it's not actually in there, you know, Friday or Saturday. Like, at what part of this sermon are you admitting where you're not doing well in it? Interesting. That's easier said than done. Yeah, absolutely, but, uh, it's important to write it in. All right, so we are nearing the end. The home stretch. We're almost landing the plane, but not yet. It is time for Interweb Insanity, stories we have not seen, sound effects we have not heard. Brian and I are going to read them sight unseen and just see what happens. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. That wacky wild music. Don't do it, Brian. <laughs> He's flipping them over ahead of time. And no, can't see him. Sight unseen. ain't the rules. So interweb insanity, stories that we have not seen, sound effects we have not heard. John, I'm, I'm curious, before we begin, on a scale of 1 to 10, today, how nervous about these stories should we be? They're actually pretty mild. Oh, oh There's some really good, like, petty ones. Like petty theft? Eh, I wouldn't say theft. It's just... Pretentious pettiness. Tom Petty? <laughs> yes, exactly. Wordplay. My brother is in a band called Petty Theft, but they just got a letter from another band called Petty Theft that has the exclusive rights to Tom Petty cover songs, and they got like a season desist. I'm probably not allowed to be talking about this, but that's uh, funny. Anyway, here we go. You ready that's for the funny. stories? I am. I'm ready. Australia. I guess I'm going first. You, I just jumped the gun yeah, there. go right ahead. Blind man's vision returns after being hit by a car on level crossing. Oh, so mild. A Polish man who was blind for more than two decades is reportedly able to see again after being hit by a car. Wait, what? On a zebra crossing? Is that just a normal crossing? <laughs> I don't know. It's pronounced zebra crossing in Australia, though. Janu's Garage from <laughs> Gorage. From it's the a city. car story. His last name is Garage. <laughs> from the city of Gorzo. Uh, Wilka Pulaski was able to see properly two weeks after the accident. According to the reports, Garage had suffered from an allergic reaction that damaged the retina in his right eye, while his other eye only registered shapes and light. Although the traffic accident took place in 2018, Garage was recently interviewed by Polestat News, where he said his sight had been perfect in all the time since being hit by the car. Was blind. <laughs> That's good. That was pretty good. That's good. That's a good version That's too. Good. Did you read the quote here? I fell in the car bonnet. Do you know what part of the car the bonnet is? Going with the top. <laughs> the hood? I don't, no, I don't know. I was, the top. I was legitimately asking you, John, John who is a, uh, a purveyor of other. Well, okay, I, I watch British television car shows. Sure you do. And it's bonnet and boot. That's the trunk and the... Uh, See, I knew the, the boots. I don't know bonnet. All right. Bonnet's we, the hood. Do we have to pause here for the fact that I watch British car shows? But Top does, Gear! But doesn't that sound about right, though? I guess. Are you surprised by that? <laughs> Did you, such a specific woman we have to... Such a specific woman we have to find for him. <laughs> 
Continue, please. <laughs> yeah, Fromm's on a real, like, Yenta vibe right now. Uh, all right, here we go. Germany. A guy wheeled around 99 phones in a cart to create traffic jams on Google Maps. <laughs> <laughs> this is funny. Oh, my goodness. Artist Simon Weckert has posted a video on YouTube showing how he managed to hack Google Maps to create virtual traffic jams on the streets of Berlin. This is so good. Oh, for his experiment, Weckert loaded 99 smartphones running Google Maps into a cart. Uh, he then had someone wheel that cart around various streets in Berlin, including outside the Google office. The phones apparently fooled Google Maps into thinking that there was a high concentration of users on those streets. Because the phones were in a cart, Maps was further tricked into believing that the traffic was slow moving. As a result, the navigation app started showing virtual traffic jams by turning green streets to red. You can watch the video below to see the trick in action. I pity those poor suckers on the freeway. Gas break, hog. Gas break, hog. Hog, hog, punch. Gas, gas, gas. Uh, all right, we're going to post this to the Facebook People page. People do People forget this. that that's how the maps works, right? They're gauging basically how many phones are active right there. Oh, yeah. That's wild. Do people forget that? I was talking to someone who didn't know that. They hadn't ever really thought by what causes it to be red or yellow or green on your map. That was like measuring prayers or something? Just or? number of cars. That somehow they were able to measure cars somehow. Hmm, interesting. Uh, New Delhi, India. Uh, consume cow urine, no, cow you. dung to stop effect of coronavirus. Okay. With coronavirus, I think I'm. Who, who said that though, Brian? Kindu Mahasaba, president. With coronavirus being declared a global health emergency by the WHO, Hindu Mahasaba has proposed bizarre treatment for the dreaded virus infection. You asked me to pronounce yeah, it. but the accent you give it is uh, so you asked weird. Me, <laughs> telling people to consume cow urine and cow dung to stop the effect of the infectious virus. I'm not going to say names here on Friday. This person said cow urine and cow dung can be used for treating novel coronavirus disease. He also said that the special uh, Yanya will be performed to, quote, kill the novel coronavirus and end its effects on the world. Just uh, threw up in my mouth a yep. little bit. Yep. Okay, we got two more to do in one minute. Ready? We can do this. We're space. freedom simultaneously. This one's from space. Minnesota. <laughs> no, <What>? stop. <laughs> I want to read the space one. Astronomers have caught a star literally dragging space time around with it. What? Huh? What? One of the predictions of Einstein's general theory of relativity is that any spinning body drags the very fabric of space-time in its vicinity around with it. This is known as frame dragging. <laughs> what? In everyday life, frame dragging is both undetectable and inconsequential as the effect is so ridiculously tiny. Detecting the frame dragging caused by the entire Earth's spin requires satellites such as the $750 million gravity probe B and the detection of an angular change in the gyroscopes equivalent to just one degree every 100,000 years or so. Prepare ship for light speed. No, no, no. Light speed is too slow. Light speed too slow? Yes. We're going to have to go speed. right to ludicrous speed. Ludicrous speed. Uh. It's a good movie. So good. Totally a subject for a different day. Maybe a uh, rapid fire. Einstein, do you think he would have been fascinating to hang out or with or really annoying? No, fascinating. You think so? Yeah. Okay. Minnesota. Woman sees picture of her missing dog in an unlikely place on a beer can. A Minnesota woman whose dog went missing three years ago was shocked when she saw her pup's picture on the side of a beer can. In 2017, Monica Mathis's dog, Hazel, ran away from her Iowa home. Mathis searched everywhere, constantly calling shelters, but was never able to find her. Mathis now lives in Minnesota. And while on Facebook, recently saw an article about MotorWorks Brewing, a brewery in Manatee County, Florida, that puts photos of local dogs available for adoption on their cans, hoping to find exposure. I saw one of the dogs, and I was like, oh my gosh, that looks like my dog. The dog <laughs> was named Day Day, and when Manatee County uh, Animal Services scanned her for a microchip, they found that she did belong to Mathis, 
but her last name was wrong and address outdated. Hmm. How? 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 I don't know. Okay. <laughs> that is a crazy story. That is crazy. Oh, I get it. I thought it was more dog related. It wasn't. Okay. Either way, never a dull moment here in the Common Good. We hope that you will join us tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. Central Standard Time or wherever it is to get your podcast. Plus, we are live streaming, so fret not. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins. This has been The Common Good. Good.